Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you'll help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support. And thanks for listening. This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One from the Commonwealth Club, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and the environment. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're discussing powering America's economy with U.S. Secretary of Energy Ernest Moniz. As the economic recovery gains steam, industries and companies are using more fuel. Supply is also on the rise thanks to a boom in oil and gas drilling spurred by hydraulic fracturing or fracking. The country's energy boom is forecast to drive domestic oil production up and imports down to levels unthinkable a decade ago. That positive trend is matched by a negative one. U.S. carbon pollution is also on the rise after declining in recent years. Over the next hour, we will look at America's energy renaissance and its efforts to combat greenhouse gases that are amplifying droughts, floods, fires, and other severe weather. Along the way, we'll take questions from our audience here at the Commonwealth Club of California. Before taking the helm of the Department of Energy in President Obama's second term, Dr. Moniz was professor of physics at MIT, where he was director of the MIT Laboratory for Energy and the Environment. Dr. Moniz previously served as the Undersecretary of Energy under President Clinton. Please welcome Secretary Moniz to the Commonwealth Club. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. Secretary Moniz, welcome. Thank you for coming. Um, I want to start by asking you... uh, when you were young, what was your inspiration to get into science? There's so much talk about science being a controversial discipline these days, getting more p- people to study science. What led you into a career in science? I would say I've had a few, a few periods when I've been inspired to go in science or s- change direction slightly. Uh, first, uh, uh, in high school, uh, I was in those you know, relatively early years uh, post-Sputnik, and it was quite literally the uh, revolution in how physics was taught. Uh, I must say it was an MIT-inspired course, and uh, that was in my senior year, and it just completely hooked me, and uh, that's the entire story through my uh, uh, PhD and uh, much of my early career at MIT, but uh, in terms of uh, what I'm doing now, I must say that uh, again, MIT uh, is one of, obviously, the great, great universities in our country. Uh, obviously technology-oriented, and there uh, it was the inspiration of 
some of the uh, physicists who had been through the, the war period and who felt that uh, uh, faculty at, M at MIT at least should really be part of uh, the public service. And so we got going into various um, study groups, et cetera, uh, that looked at uh, energy and security issues. And then eventually that led, I guess, to my wandering off to government a few times. Uh, but um, now I find it difficult to distinguish life at a university and in government. <laughs> Do you think that the climate challenge is sort of a Sputnik-like motivation for, for younger students to get into science? Absolutely. Uh, first of all, it was uh, for me as well, uh, starting in the 90s uh, and uh, in my first go-round at, at, uh, at Department of Energy and now uh, it's, a major, major, it's a major focus, of course, start, starting with the president and his, his commitment. But if I go back uh, to, the, uh, to the students, uh, I would refer to my period at MIT in the last decade in which we started something called the MIT Energy Initiative. And uh, the enthusiasm and the commitment of the students to want to put their science and technology and management and economic talents, uh, to, you know, to bring them to bear on this challenge, the climate challenge, uh, was really remarkable. Uh, similarly, uh, about 25% of the entire faculty uh, became engaged. And I think this encourages me in the sense that, in contrast to the uh, up and downs of interest that we've seen in the past with oil prices, uh, I think that the uh, the climate challenge is one that's going to continue to hold the attention of uh, of, of our talented uh, students. So the, we have the climate challenge. We also have this boom in, in energy supply and production going on in the United States. Tell us where we are, you think, in terms of the Obama administration efforts to both manage this supply, this renaissance, while also reducing carbon pollution. Well, I'd say the you know we are uh, we are addressing uh, our energy challenges with first of all I would I would say three major objectives in mind. Uh, one is to support economic growth, good jobs, etc. Uh, secondly, is to reinforce our security, uh, and third, uh, and perhaps in my view of uh, greatest interest right now is uh, addressing the climate challenge. So the issue is how do we do all those three uh, uh, together? And uh, first of all, I would say by observation, uh, it is true that CO2 emissions have ticked up a little bit in the last, uh, in the last year, but uh, we are significantly below our levels in the 2005-2007 period, and indeed uh, roughly halfway uh, towards the goal that President Obama put out in 2009 of a 17% reduction by 2020. So we are there. Secondly, there's no question uh, that uh, what's happening in energy uh, has uh, led to economic growth uh, and, uh, and jobs. A couple of observations there. Recently, Fortune magazine uh, put out in a list of 100 fastest growing companies. 26 of those had their growth pegged to what's happening in energy. Uh, we could go on about, about jobs. Uh, the solar industry uh, is now up to nearly 150,000 direct jobs uh, as deployment has really just blossomed uh, tre tremendously. And also part of the economic uh, uh, picture is the uh, considerable rebirth in manufacturing in the United States. 
700,000 manufacturing jobs uh, added. Uh, I would note two things in terms of the spillover effects there. Uh, one is that manufacturing in turn supports two-thirds of private sector R&D in the country. So there's kind of a nice virtuous circle there. Uh, secondly, uh, 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 would note that the abundance of rel relative to other major economies, relatively inexpensive natural gas, in turn has supported much of the growth in manufacturing. There are various estimates made uh, between one and two hundred billion dollars uh, as the investment in new manufacturing capacity in this country uh, in the remainder of this decade driven by the low natural gas prices. So we are seeing the, uh, the economic uh, benefits. We are seeing CO2 reductions uh, uh, on the ground. That, that's the ground truth. Now the question is sustaining it and, in fact, accelerating the transformation to low carbon that we need to meet our climate, uh, climate challenges. That uh, notion of cheap natural gas driving manufacturing, et cetera, is, is often heard, and yet uh, we've interviewed some people from McKinsey and elsewhere who say that might be true if you're in gas, uh, you're making, making glass or really energy-intensive industries, but if you're making other things, energy costs are 1% or 2% of, of your overall costs. Your big costs are capital, your employees, et cetera. So the question is really whether that natural gas contribution is perhaps oversold in some cases as its contribution to growth and and manufacturing. Well, I mean, clearly, uh, in, the, in what I'm quoting, we're trying to, to, to uh, take account of that. Uh, number one, uh, of course, if one discounts all the energy-intensive industries, well, then energy, energy prices don't matter that much. But right. the fact is we have large uh, energy-intensive uh, industries. Uh, on uh, National Manufacturing Day, uh, I'm sure all of you were celebrating National Manufacturing Day, <laughs> on October the 3rd, uh, I went to a, uh, to a plant in, in New York, uh, a plant that was based upon uh, innovation, uh, a company that had... Uh, really reinvented itself uh, from a commodity company to an advanced materials company. Tremendous R&D uh, going on. But when all was said and done, their very high-tech ceramic-based product came out of a long row of kilns with natural gas heating them. Mm -hmm. So they, sure, they had an advantage. Uh, they were using uh, the advantage, uh, I would say, of, of innovation, uh, 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 but they were also benefiting and had a competitive edge uh, from those low gas prices. And I might, and may I add a second thing, Greg? Because we often talk about, and, and I make, and I do as well, uh, we talk about gas, but we should also recognize that the natural gas revolution has also led to a natural gas liquids revolution. We're talking about ethane, the feedstock for ethylene and lots of thing, products that we see. We're talking about propane, uh, butane, etc. Uh, we have gone to have an incredible supply of this, and this is part as well of the manufacturing renaissance using those natural gas uh, liquids. There's a couple of ways to, to uh, sort of address the, the carbon question, the climate question. People talk about making green energy cheaper or making brown energy more expensive. Which do you think is the right way? 
Look, ultimately, uh, we have to keep driving to less costly green energy. Uh, we must remember that climate change can only have a global solution. And so the kinds of technologies that we're talking about, the green technologies, have to be deployed, of course, in the United States, in, in Europe, in Japan. Uh, and it is important, uh, and the president has emphasized this, that you know, the United States has to show leadership, uh, frankly, uh, in, in this arena. But in the end, the solution scales only when the emerging economies, the developing countries, also adopt those technologies. And that means we've got to drive the cost down uh, to, to, to succeed. The good news is we are. Uh, if you look at uh, what's happened to solar energy, uh, we've gone from you know, $10 a watt to uh, $0.80 cents a watt for a solar module. And we have seen the deployment as a result uh, uh, go, go up as the costs have come down. LEDs, incredible story. A factor of 100 in deployment in less than three years because the costs have come down dramatically. We're now talking about, you know, one-year payback periods of only energy savings, not including some other benefits that uh, commercial and others uh, achieve because of the long lifetime. We forget how much it costs to change a bulb if it's in a high ceiling, for example. Uh, Batteries for electric vehicles, a 3x reduction in cost in about six years. We still need another 2 to 3x, but the progress being made in cost reduction is critical. Now, that is not to say that uh, we don't need you know, economy-wide approaches to, to limiting carbon emissions. We do. Uh, we have them now. The, the, the President's Climate Action Plan uh, has put forward a number. We have, of course, vastly increased efficiency standards for our vehicles. Uh, we have a draft rule out from the EPA uh, in terms of power plant emissions, etc. Eventually, uh, we believe that we will need to bring this together into an economy-wide uh, approach. But cost reduction is critical a global solution. And in some of those instances you cite, there were subsidies that were accelerated or helped at cost reductions. Solar was subsidized in a lot of places. I think LED, correct me if I'm wrong, probably less so. Uh, so what's the role of subsidies? Should there be more subsidies for green energy? Or I think the president has tried to remove subsidies for brown energy so that the, the price differential is different. Well, over time, historically, uh, you know, you can argue, of course, a subsidy is sometimes in the eye of the beholder, uh, but, uh, but there certainly have been uh, subsidies, incentives uh, for just about every form of energy uh, as it is introduced, uh, uh, for sure. Uh, so uh, today, uh, we certainly have uh, a number of ways in which we in the Department of Energy, for example, uh, assist the introduction of, of technologies. Part of it, of course, is we fund directly uh, the early stage R&D, uh, which typically is, is not done by, uh, by, by industry. But given the urgency that we attach to accelerating the transformation, we also do work at the deployment end. 
Sometimes it's not a financial issue. For example, we have dramatically increased the pace uh, of issuing energy efficiency standards for appliances, electric motors, you name it. Uh, and of course, this is a way of it brings higher efficiency, uh, lower lower emissions. In other cases, uh, we have uh, a very large loan program. Uh, we have issued $30 billion worth of loans and loan guarantees. We have $40 billion of authority remaining, uh, which we intend to deploy. And this is a way of jump-starting areas. For example, this, this is a great example, uh, perhaps our best, but it's, 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 it's one, one of several. Uh, if you take large-scale photovoltaic, so-called utility scale, 100 megawatts in larger plants, in 2009, there were none in the United States. There was also, by the way, hardly any debt financing available uh, for anyone. Uh, the DOE loan program came in. It provided the help uh, for, for five utility-scale photovoltaic plants, all successes. Today, there are 17 additional projects exclusively with private financing. So that's the model we like, that we come in, uh, we help get this thing pushed off, uh, and uh, then the private sector comes in to, to continue uh, the, uh, the deployment. If you're just joining us, our guest today at the Commonwealth Club of California is, is U.S. Secretary of Energy Ernest Moniz. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, we're going to try something new and different here. We're going to invite uh, a guest from the audience to briefly tell his story of innovation. Uh, Jigger Shaw co-founded, was founded uh, SunPower, one of the companies. So, Jigger, why don't you come tell us your brief one-minute story, and then we'll uh, have go on. Welcome. Thanks. Uh, thank you for being here, Secretary Moniz. Uh, I grew up in rural Illinois. I uh, read a book when I was uh, 16 about energy. Every technology was covered two pages at a time, so in my <laughs> naivete, I thought all of the technologies were equal. Um, thought that uh, solar was equal to coal and set about figuring it out. Got my uh, engineering degree at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Uh, worked at a wind startup, worked at a, the Department of Energy in the uh, Office of Transportation Technologies back then. Oh, I see. And then at BP <laughs> for four years. Um mm-hmm. And then I started Sun Edison, um, which has now become the largest uh, uh, solar development company in the world by popularizing the power purchase agreement. And uh, you know, I think you know we've we've been able to raise lots of private sector capital for solar projects, and I think we're estimating another trillion dollars comes in using that model over the next six years. Um, and we're we're moving now to I'm moving personally to uh, bringing that kind of capital to combined heat and power. Um, chilled water systems, uh, energy efficiency, wood pellet boilers. There's lots of things that could be financed with a power purchase agreement, not just solar. Thank you. Great. Correct. I was corrected. Sun Edison. So there we have a, a, mm-hmm. a, a person from rural Illinois working for an oil company, starting a company that's now valued on the stock market $5 billion, somewhere in there. He founded a $5 billion company, success story. What are you doing to have more entrepreneurs like Jigger Shah doing those kinds of things in clean energy for America? Well, first of all, it's a great story. Uh, and uh, I just would like to comment that if you peel that story apart, it, it has a very important lesson. Uh, I talked about innovation, and uh, I think that uh, probably I was thinking, and many of you were thinking, that reading really means innovation in technology. 
But we should emphasize, we need innovation in technology and innovation in business models happening at the same time. This was clearly a business model innovation. And another one I just mentioned just, just yesterday uh, was announced uh, with a coalition of uh, large companies uh, inspired apparently by the World Wildlife Fund. Uh, they are beginning to offer to their employees uh, as an employee benefit the opportunity for a rooftop solar with, uh, with lower cost. Uh, so I think this business model innovation is absolutely, absolutely critical. What we are doing um, in terms of having more of these uh, stories, uh, well, first of all, for solar specifically, we have a program called Sunshot, obviously, a takeoff on Moonshot. Uh, and uh, the Sunshot program uh, really works across the chain, including not just the, the hardware, but getting the so-called soft costs uh, down. In fact, yesterday, uh, we announced, and it's on our website if you all want to enter, uh, or at least at this stage, help to shape the rules for the contest. We, we announced a new contest, uh, $10 million uh, in prize money, uh, for teams that shorten the time from permit to lights on uh, from about six months, typically, uh, to a week. Uh, it's a big stretch, but that's the kind of thing that will require innovation in a business model and in how the public sector addresses licensing. Uh, but that kind of innovation is just as important as the innovation that's driving the hardware costs down. So I, I really want to congratulate you on that. Uh, and $5 billion isn't bad. Uh, the, uh, now, again, in terms of what we do, uh, it covers a spectrum. Uh, for example, one of our programs, which was uh, put into place in 2009, is called ARPA-E. Uh, ARPA is the, for those who don't know, uh, Advanced Research Projects Agency. It's a semi-legendary uh, organization at the Department of Defense, which has had major technology breakthroughs. They work in a little bit of more of a freewheeling style than, than a typical government program. Uh, in they played a role in the Internet. Uh, internet, uh, stealth, hard, hardware, lots and lots of uh, things. Um, and uh, so in 2009, the Department of Energy uh, uh, started a program called ARPA-Energy, ARPA-E, uh, with the same kind of idea. And so here, uh, the department is providing um, a few million dollars, typically, uh, to someone with uh, uh, a technology that's still pre-marketplace, but looks to be ready in a, in a few years to have a well-defined product ready for market. And we also provide uh, mentoring in terms of product to market uh, for university professors, for example, who have not, not been engaged in that before. So that's one way of trying to feed that venture capital pi uh, pipeline, the, the, the startup pipeline. Uh, but we also have other mechanisms. Uh, I mentioned, for example, the loan program where uh, to qualify you do have to advance the ball on the technology but yet still be uh, credible to, ent to enter the marketplace. Uh, I'll just mention one uh, as an example of what I mean. Uh, yesterday I was in Nevada and uh, we have provided again loan guarantee support for building a large uh, concentrated solar uh, project. It's stretching the envelope is it will have 10 hours of energy storage uh, built into it. Uh, so again, these kinds of new features is, is what we do, and that's bringing again players uh, into the marketplace.
We're talking about uh, America's energy future with U.S. Secretary of Energy, Ernest Moniz. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's talk about crude oil. Uh, there's so much going on being produced in the United States. There's talk of, of softening or eliminating the ban on crude oil exports. Should the United States export crude oil? First of all, that is the responsibility of the Department of Commerce. Uh, uh, the, uh, how, how convenient. Secondly, yeah. uh, <laughs> sec- uh, and I certainly would not want to complicate their, their deliberations. Uh, but, uh, but a few things. First of all, I think it is worth um, giving the context, which you said a little bit in your opening remarks, uh, Greg. Uh, the, the increase in our oil production is quite remarkable. Uh, we are up to about eight and a half million barrels a day of crude oil. Uh, we expect to go over 10. We could go significantly over 10. Many think we will be the world's largest oil producer uh, within a few years, uh, which is quite a change from where we were. No one ever thought that would happen. Correct. Now, having said that, a couple of other points. First, our imports have gone down very, very substantially. However, put that in context, we still import 7.5 million barrels of crude oil per day. We are an enormous importer still because of our enormous use. So the question of exports should be kept in that context, that we are still large uh, importers. What the oil production increase has done for sure is dramatically lower our imbalance of payments. Uh, so it's a lot more, a lot more capital, a lot more resource that stays in our economy uh, to go to to other uh, uh, other purposes. I want to make another point. This goes back to the issue you raised initially about how do we, in some sense, put all of this together: climate, oil production, uh, economy. We have not taken our eye off the ball of reducing oil dependence. So as we lower our imports, lower our export bill, we are aggressively pursuing more efficient vehicles, alternative fuels like next generation biofuels, and electrification of vehicles like getting those costs down on batteries. So we are working very hard on reducing our oil dependence. It sounds kind of odd, even as we increase our oil production and lower imports. And this whole question, of course, is tied to geopolitics. Uh, Oil's been around $100 for a couple years now in the 80s. Some people think it might be the 70s. That has an impact on Saudi Arabia, can have an impact on Russia. So what is? how do you see the geopolitical dimension of oil where it is now? At some point, the Saudi Arabian regime needs a certain price to keep the place afloat. Well, uh, and they will, they and and OPEC colleagues will will take actions as they as they choose. Obviously, we believe in a market in a market structure. Uh, Oil has a has a global market market price. The extra production in the United States, the enhanced production in the United States, uh, has come at a time actually when there has been there has been considerable disruption. Uh, in the oil markets. It's not quite recognized that we are at pretty near historic highs of what are called unanticipated outages. 
uh, in oil. Uh, Libya, for example, has had problems. They've come up a little bit recently, uh, and that has impacted the, the, the global prices. But they are still not back to where they were. Iraq is not back to where they were. Uh, Etc. We Syria still have has a, this Syria embargo <laughs> on Iran, uh, unrest in in Africa. So the U.S. additional production uh, has been critical in keeping the world as a whole supplied well, without further price spikes. And ex- exactly, and and now that's showing up uh, in the global oil price, also reflecting, of course, very importantly, what has been you know, somewhat soft economies in in Europe and in China. So the demand side has been a little bit soft. Uh, uh, U.S. production has helped fill fill the gap of some some disruptions. And uh, I'm certainly not going to predict where the oil price is going. <laughs> Should oil sanctions on Russia be stricter? Well, look, we we have uh, obviously pursued with our with our allies uh, a uh, set of actions. Uh, that has been has, has affected certainly some financing processes, uh, 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 including in the energy sector, uh, and certainly uh, has impacted the long-term development of resources uh, in uh, in Russia. Has not really had a, a major impact in, by design in terms of immediate immediate supply. But of course, the hope is that the cause of the sanctions will uh, will be uh, will be addressed, uh, and that we can we can return to uh, to normal behavior. But the issue is for uh, in in Russia's case, and it's for others too. But for Russia, uh, if they are developing more frontier resources, uh, you know, in the Arctic, for example, uh, as they uh, invest capital for large Facilities like LNG export terminals, uh, for example, those rely very, very heavily on Western technology, and so really the the real crimp there is in their ability to develop the the future resources. And does lower gas prices have an impact on renewable energy? That if gas price, the difference between renewables uh, is is different. You know, sometimes it's it's uh, renewables are more expensive. If gas prices come down, it makes it harder to to beat those. Is there less of incentive with lower gas prices? Natural gas prices. Uh, Gasoline prices. Oh, gasoline sorry. prices. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Oh, oh, uh, because crude oil is down where it, from where it has been, gas prices, gasoline prices are soft. Does that make it tougher for biofuels or things trying to compete against that oil? Okay. So f- first of all, in terms of obviously the electricity sector is not in the United States impacted uh, by by oil right. in, in, a, in a direct in a direct sense. Um, in terms of uh, biofuels, uh, clearly they're. Uh, you know, ultimately, we're going to we have a market uh, for uh, for all of these different uh, different fuels. Uh, but of course, today uh, it's a little bit complicated right now. But today, uh, we st- we do have by law, of course, uh, requirements uh, for alternative fuel use, uh, uh, ethanol use, both ethanol and cellulosic ethanol. Uh, there's a little bit of strain in the system right now uh, getting worked out in terms of so-called blend walls uh, because we did hit 10% essentially of our gasoline uh, being displaced by, uh, by, by ethanol. And now the question is, if gasoline demand is flat or declining, then how do we adjust in terms of the biofuels and, and gasoline? 
but certainly the 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 standard in terms of ethanol is still there frankly even as gasoline prices drop a little bit and how about that trend of uh, some Americans are driving fewer miles millennials don't uh, lust after a set of wheels like like you and I did when we were teenagers uh, the total number of uh, gasoline demand is down and softening and I think the the, the gasoline industry knows that so how, how does that going affect America's economy when sort of declining uh, driving and gasoline it's a very important issue. As I said earlier, uh, we are we are in fact focused on reducing oil uh, uh, oil dependence. But you know, Greg, I think the thing the issue you raise there uh, is a very important one in the context of accelerating the low carbon transformation, and it touches again on this issue of the need for business model innovation. What I mean is the following: if we look historically, the energy system is slow to change. Characteristically, a half a century uh, uh, for major changes in the fuel in the fuel mix. We want to pick up the pace for our because of the climate. Twenty five years, maybe. <laughs> so cut it in, cut it in half, let's say. However, there's a difference. In the past, those changes of market share, if you like, of different fuels, you know, wood, coal, oil, gas, etc. Those all came at a time of significantly increasing demand. Your business model isn't changed so much if what you are doing is moving in to meet new demand. But today, in gasoline, in electricity, uh, we are not seeing that kind of demand increase. Indeed, we we believe, and I think most of us would believe, that part of meeting the climate challenge, a major part, has to be on the demand side. So working hard on efficiency, uh, for example, that makes a certain complication in transforming the system more rapidly when you don't have that increasing demand. So that's an issue where, again, uh, I think we have to keep the technology innovation and the business model innovation kind of going hand in hand. Let's talk about nuclear power. It's often seen as it's, it is a zero carbon source of energy. Uh, U.S. has, what, 103 or so nuclear power plants. The Obama administration has uh, provided some new financing, some, some new plants for the first time. Uh, yet you're talking about the reduction of costs of lots of for, uh, forms of energy. Nuclear keeps going up all the other forms of energy keep going down. So is nuclear wise, given the cost inflation that it's seen, industries fail to deliver on lower costs? Again, costs are a huge part of the issue, and, uh, and uh, the new generation of nuclear plants, look, these are not going to be inexpensive, uh, obviously, uh, but they do have uh, the advantage very similar to renewables in principle, by the way. They are basically capital-intensive and very low cost relatively to operate. So that's, that's the equation. And the, the same is true for, uh, for uh, wind and solar. The difference is that up to now, the economy of scale arguments has made the chunks you need to buy for nuclear, uh, you know, 1,000 megawatts up to 1,600 megawatts, for ten, one plant. $10 billion. Exactly. Versus the more modular opportunities you have 
with renewables. So the financing equation is different, even though it's the same basic equation of, of high capital and low cost. So two points. One is we have, as you alluded to, we have four so-called Generation 3-plus nuclear plants being built in the United States, two in Georgia and two in South Carolina. These are the first new plants in decades. Their cost and schedule performance will be critical. Uh, certainly if they have the kinds of cost escalations, which they don't seem to have, uh, they have some cost escalation, but nothing like we've seen in some recent plants uh, in Europe, for example. If they come in on reasonably close to, to cost and schedule, uh, I think we probably will see some, some additional plants uh, uh, built, particularly in parts of the country where the regulatory structure allows cost recovery plus. That, in that which, the which southeast, means, which means consumers pay, and and the southeast, uh, yes. But but the issue is what the levelized cost may be quite 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 competitive. It's it's that upfront cost. But the second thing I will say is we also have a program uh, where again I, I can't tell you how it will turn out. We have a program uh, for so what are called small modular reactors. So the idea here is they, they look very attractive in terms of safety features, etc. We are supporting two of them towards licensing in the range of 50 to 200 megawatts, so much smaller. How far now, in the future? We hope the first one will be operating in about 2022. Okay, But here's the proposition. The scale argument says if you go smaller, it's going to cost more per unit. Uh, by the way, the scale argument also says if you're really big, and you have a problem, it costs a lot more, too. Uh, uh, You've got a really uh, big problem. You've got a big problem then. So the idea here is these much smaller reactors would be built entirely. They're, they're the, all the guts would be built on a factory production line, bringing along all of the quality control and quality assurance and uh, trained and established uh, workforce the question is, will the economics of manufacturing overcome the economics of scale? We don't know. There's a lot of interest in these because you don't need the $10 billion at a pop. Uh, there's a lot of interest in, far, in, in foreign countries for serving smaller loads. But we don't know. And, I, and, I, and our, our argument is we, don't, we won't know until we try some of this. So we, we are putting in fairly modest amounts of support to have these go towards, uh, towards licensing. But I do want to emphasize, and not everyone agrees with this, but I want to emphasize, the President's position is clear, and so is mine. We pursue an all-of-the-above approach. We put resources in to every fuel, fossil, nuclear, renewables efficiency, that will lower emissions. And so we're, we're, we are going across the board because we believe that when the words low carbon solution are, are stated, it's in some sense misleading. There will be multiple low carbon solutions. They will look different in different countries. They will look different in different parts of our country. The important thing is to get to, the low, to a low carbon solution. And in that sense, we think across the board, there's going to be a role for just about everything if it 
reduces carbon emissions. So we are making these investments in nuclear as well as our very strong investments in renewables uh, and efficiency. On the small nuclear uh, reactors, I want to know what Homer Simpson has to say about those. I think he has some kind of thought uh, on those. There's got to be a Simpsons episode on that coming soon, if there isn't already. On uh, on uh, consumer choice, you, know, you talk about a portfolio, all of the above. Uh, consumers have one of the tenets of capitalism is consumers have choice. Yet in choosing power, most consumers don't have choice. There's a monopoly power provider in each area. There's been some efforts in California and elsewhere to, to provide competition and consumer choice. The incumbent utilities have tried to stab that and stomp it. Uh, what's your position on consumers having choice in, in utility markets? I know that's more of a state issue, but should there be more competition and consumer choice for electricity in the United States? Well, first of all, I, I do want to reinforce what you said, that it's a, it's a, a state issue in, in, in our overall regulatory structure. Uh, I also want to emphasize that, of course, the person or the, 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 the entity that is actually delivering the electrons to your house uh, certainly in many parts of the country, does not actually own generation, is, is the distribution company that mm-hmm. that because uh, that's been separated. Now, uh, having said that, there are many, again, business models uh, that are enabled by public policy, like renewable portfolio standards, uh, for example, uh, al- allowing consumers to buy green energy. Uh, that's great. Uh, I, I absolutely believe that we should provide uh, those uh, those choices, uh, but those will be provided in the context of of business models uh, that are perhaps framed uh, by uh, by local, state, and regional uh, policies. Look, in this country, it's clear, as has been the case in many times before. In California, of course, is a great uh, as, has always been on the front lines uh, in terms of ad- advancing environmental. Uh, regulations and laws, uh, but right now we do see, of course, in many states. Look, uh, roughly half of our states have some form of renewable portfolio standard. Uh, in the Northeast, where I come from, uh, Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, we have a whole bunch of states uh, together in, uh, uh, in terms of uh, climate action. Uh, and by the way, the EPA rule on power plants. One of the things that's very important there is it emphasizes flexibility in state responses to the, to the carbon target and the ability for states to group together into regional groupings that can further aid them in, meet, in meeting the targets. I think that eventually, as has happened before, all of the various experiments uh, going on in our states and regions uh, will hopefully come together and, and inspire uh, an appropriate national, uh, national approach. If you're just joining us, our guest today at Commonwealth Club is U.S. Secretary of Energy Ernest Moniz. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, you talked about getting the cleanest, lowest carbon fuels. Uh, one of the main arguments for natural gas is that it, it's cleaner than coal, and yet there's a, quite a debate about whether natural gas, when you consider the methane released during extraction, uh, natural gas burns cleaner than coal, but when you consider the whole uh, p- picture, there's a really de- quite a debate about whether coal really is dirtier than natural gas. What's your view? Well, I, I definitely uh, uh, see natural gas uh, as a uh, as a bridge to a low carbon future. First of all, again, the facts on the ground are that the increase in our natural gas use in the United States has accounted for roughly half of our CO two reductions uh, in the last years. Now, uh, methane, uh, of course, we should also. I think it's important to 
uh, I'll come back to methane explicitly, but to, to remember that carbon dioxide uh, is different from the other greenhouse gases that we are concerned about uh, in terms of its very long residence time in the, in, in the atmosphere. Uh, CO2 molecule today, roughly speaking, you know, it's, we've, got, we've bought it for a, a long time. Whereas others like uh, methane, uh, hydrofluorocarbons, uh, these are more on a decadal time scale. And that's important because it means if we control those greenhouse gases, then the problem kind of goes away in a few decades uh, as opposed to centuries with carbon dioxide. So that's an important distinction. So with methane, we know what to do. I mean, we have to do it. Uh, and there has been a considerable reduction uh, in methane emissions uh, from production, as far as we can see. But we are concerned about methane, the Department of Energy, uh, in, in a broader context. It's end-to-end. So, for example, we have in the transmission pipes, the compressors, uh, so we are we are we have announced that we are going to we look forward to standards on compressors, and of course an area that we do not have the authority, but you've seen in a lot of cities, including my hometown Boston, uh, we have a lot of very very old pipe, uh, cast iron pipe, and of course and that's a safety issue. So what we need need to do for greenhouse gas purposes, for safety issues. We need to renew the infrastructure in this country, and this is part of what we need to do. Uh, And a lot of states and cities have come forward with innovative ways for their distribution companies to accelerate the replacement of this old infrastructure. It's also great for jobs, by the way. Not surprisingly, labor is very, very favorable towards these kinds of infrastructure things. So we need to we need to look at the solutions in a in a, in a broader context. I I certainly believe uh, with methane. The goal that um, organizations like the Environmental Defense Fund, uh, for example, we held we held five roundtables with all the stakeholders uh, on these issues of end-to-end methane emissions. And a goal, which I think is a realistic goal, is to be able to get end-to-end emissions below 1%. Uh, and, uh, and in that context, uh, you know, I think uh, uh, natural gas is definitely a bridge. I do want to emphasize, <clears throat> no one, at least I, and I think no one who studied this in any, at any depth, has ever said that just by producing more natural gas, we solve the climate problem. <laughs> it is a bridge to where we have the kinds of economy-wide policies uh, that we can have very, very low carbon emissions. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guest today is U.S. Secretary of Energy, Ernest Moniz. Uh, Mr. Secretary, I have one question before we go to the audience portion. Uh, you recently were on the NPR show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, uh, and you, you <laughs> called in, uh, and you talked about, I'd like you to confirm for us, that you actually do have the best uh, hairstyle in the president's cabinet. <laughs> This, the statement made on the on the internet was since 1794. Uh, I am I am I, I won't comment about today, but since and uh, right. you also uh, since we are here in California, what are, where are the origins of that hairstyle? Oh, you you obviously heard the program. I made the point that this is what happens when you move from Boston to California. You know, it's just kind of natural. <laughs> Still live in the seventies. Okay, let's uh, right. uh, let's go to audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Yes, thank you. 
You mentioned earlier the importance of bringing uh, the issue of climate change to a global stage in terms of spreading the responsibility. And one mechanism for doing that is to involve corporations and governments in purchasing carbon offsets uh, to support projects around the globe that are reducing carbon emissions. And I wanted to ask you, how do you view the role of carbon offsets in today's carbon economy, and how do you see that role evolving over the next, say, decade in terms of energy policy in the U.S.? If I could just briefly, we'll say a carbon offset is paying a company to save some trees in the Amazon or do something good somewhere, and they get a benefit for that. Your answer, Mr. Secretary. Yes, and and, and as you know, uh, there has there has been uh, uh, a clean development mechanism, for example, uh, which uh, in fact is a way of allowing uh, perhaps cheaper per ton CO2 emissions reductions in in other countries, in developing countries, for example. Um, I personally believe, and this is, a, this is just a personal statement, uh, clearly what happens in, in Paris uh, will, I think, be, you know, be very important uh, for this. I should say Paris, but I mean the, the, the negotiation uh, and climate that will, will take place in uh, November, December of 2015 uh, in Paris. It's clear that the opportunities are there for, again, having less costly reductions in CO2 in some developing country uh, context. There remain challenges uh, for knowing how to score it, uh, so-called additionality uh, challenges. I personally would hope in the, that we would see that as part of a global climate solution, partly because I would like to see it integrated with economic development in, in developing countries. I must say that uh, in uh, early June, uh, I co-chaired in, in Africa, in Ethiopia, it was held in, in Addis, uh, a U.S.-Africa energy ministerial. We had over 40 uh, African countries engaged, including over 20 at the ministerial level. Uh, we also had 60 American companies, energy companies uh, there, and what was stunning to me was the desire on the part of so many of these African, African countries specifically to have American companies engage there in clean energy development. And, uh, and so somehow we've got to make all these things come together uh, in a way that helps our, our global climate challenges, helps our companies helps the economic development of, of, these, of these countries. In Africa, I must say, one sensed, uh, I sensed uh, a, really a real dynamic situation uh, in which the next decade could be really, really critical. Uh, we all know, uh, and they know, that there are some governance challenges to be met in, in, in various countries, but the opportunity for all this to come together is fantastic. Just one example. Um, uh, and then I'll stop uh, in Ethiopia for example uh, and this flowed from uh, the president's Power Africa initiative uh, a big geothermal project going on it turns out East Africa a, f a huge piece of East Africa has got tremendous geothermal potential 
Uh, and uh, just yesterday, I was looking at all of this in Nevada in terms of uh, uh, geothermal. So I think it's a great, great opportunity to have all, all this come together and accomplish multiple goals. I'm Greg Dalton. I'm talking about U.S. Energy with U.S. Secretary of Energy Ernest Moniz at the Commonwealth Club. Let's have our next audience question. Hi. On a related note, um, so not just in terms of Africa, but you'd mentioned beforehand that a lot of demand in the U.S. is decreasing, but as we all know, demand is increasing in places like China, India. So what has been the role of the U.S. DOE so far to help address the climate challenge in those emerging economies, and how do you see the role of the DOE progressing in the future um, on the international sense? Well, we have uh, uh, very strong engagements with working with with, with other countries, uh, d- developing, emerging, <laughs> established uh, uh, in terms of clean energy. Uh, with China, uh, we've had a very energetic uh, uh, collaboration. Four four plus years ago, for example, with China, we established something called the Clean Energy Research Center, U.S. China Clean Energy Research Center. And it's a program where uh, both governments and industry in both countries comes together uh, to do R&D, to do do demonstrations, uh, do analysis around clean energy. Uh, And actually, to give you an idea just of how important we think this kind of dialogue is, in July, for what's called the Strategic and Economic Dialogue, the United States, it happens every year, alternates places. We had five cabinet members in Beijing for the discussion. Uh, and energy and uh, clean energy and climate uh, was uh, a track uh, that was involved the whole of our delegation and, and of their, their delegation. So it's taken quite seriously. And, and there we uh, agreed that uh, we would both renew for a second five years and expand the nature of this, this collaboration. That's just one one example, but uh, but we are working quite closely. And frankly, I would say that uh, the Chinese leadership uh, uh, expressed very clearly their understanding about the importance of addressing climate change. The question is always how, how fast, when, etc. But we have similar dialogues uh, with with India, with Brazil, with South Africa. Uh, with some Middle Eastern countries, uh, Saudi Arabia, UAE, for example. We also have something actually called the Clean Energy Ministerial, which involves approximately 20 countries. started in 2009. Uh, just, we had our last meeting in, in Korea. And this is having some material, material benefits. For example, from the Clean Energy Ministerial, India became the first country in the world working off some... Uh, developments that are taking place in the United States, actually, but they were the first in the world to really establish uh, a set of standards for LED lighting that will be very, very important uh, in terms of uh, obviously high efficiency, et cetera. So we are, we are uh, th- this is this is critical. Let's have our last audience question for Secretary Moniz. At the recent United Nations meetings, over sixty countries signed on to the principle of carbon pricing. You mentioned this is a global issue, that there needs to be national solutions, and the Climate Action Plan is moving that way. There are two approaches, carbon tax, preferably uh, revenue neutral, and the more complex cap and trade. How will the U.S. pursue this issue uh, as it gets into the Paris discussions coming up? Well, uh, 
Needless to say, either of those solutions uh, requires legislative action. Uh, and as I've said, we, uh, we, the president has said, we, uh, we are eager uh, to work with the Congress in terms of uh, legislative approaches. Uh, but frankly, uh, right now, uh, we don't see that happening. Uh, it hasn't happened in the last uh, couple of years. It's probably not going to happen next year. Uh, so we're going to have to work around the uh, sectoral approach that, that the president has brought together using ex existing authorities. So that's the reality of uh, wh uh, where we stand. Or everybody could just move to California like you did in the 70s from Boston. Yeah. As we close here, I'd like to ask you one last thing about uh, unburnable carbon. There's this idea out there that a significant amount of uh, carbon assets on the balance sheets of fossil fuel companies, oil, coal, gas, uh, cannot be burned. Recently, uh, a, a central banker in the United Kingdom m mentioned this. I'd like to hear your view that some of this carbon can't be burned if we're, the world's serious about maintaining civilization as we know it. Well, you know, there's, this, there's the famous uh, quote of the uh, Saudi oil minister in the 1970s uh, that uh, the Stone Age didn't end for lack of stones and the Oil Age won't end for lack of oil. Mm -hmm. uh, it goes back again to the story of uh, we need to keep working, driving down the costs uh, such that the low-carbon alternatives are going to be the best choice. Uh, they're good for security. Uh, you don't have to worry about importing the sun or the wind or, or earth, the Earth's heat. And, and I think in the end, uh, the technology uh, and associated business model innovations uh, are going to have to ca carry the day. There are some, of course, technologies that can uh, uh, alleviate that to a certain extent. For example, uh, the Department of Energy isn't, uh, I said we're all of the above. So we have huge investments in what's called carbon capture and sequestration or carbon capture utilization and sequestration. So for those not familiar with it, uh, you have, say, a coal plant, uh, and uh, rather than uh, having the carbon dioxide go into the atmosphere, you capture it, compress it, pipe it, put it underground. Uh, today in the United States, it may not be widely recognized, we actually produce 300,000 barrels of oil per day using 60 megatons of CO2 per year that is injected into uh, older oil wells. The CO2 stays down there is the idea, and the oil comes out, so you have the economic benefit. So, uh, so for a while, that may uh, work. The estimate is that that could be increased by about a factor of 10. Well, okay, if we could have 600 megatons a year of CO2 uh, disposed of in this way with an economic benefit, maybe that'll, that'll, that'll take us there. It, it won't replace nine, 9 billion tons of coal use globally. Uh, but, uh, but again, the solutions are going to come across the board with, I would say, uh, a little bit of this, a lot of renewables, a lot of efficiency, uh, and uh, and then hopefully we will just drive the system down to very low to to very low carbon, and of course, very low pollution generally, which is something that China is 
highly motivated by, of course. We have to end it there. I'm Greg Dalton. I've been talking about the future of U.S. energy with U.S. Secretary of Energy Ernest Moniz. You can listen to this and other podcasts of Climate One in the iTunes Store. I'd like to thank our audience here at the Commonwealth Club and those listening on radio. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Our producer is Jane Ann Chen. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is Andre Hurd and editor is Annie Chelsea. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future.